0: Amen. Thank you, Dylan. All right, kids, it's that time where you guys can go with Miss Robin. She's going out that door over there. And parents, uh, after the service, you can pick them up off of the children's hall there. Uh, And if you're staying in here, then I would ask you to turn to the Gospel of John with me this morning. Uh, We're going to be in the Gospel of John and continuing to walk through uh, this. Uh, We started last week. Uh, which means we started last year. How's, how's 2024 going for you guys? Or longer break there so I could get that water down. So you guys should have talked a little bit more about your 2024. It seems kind of weird, right? When, when we're seven days in and it's our first Sunday together, you know, with, with New Year's Day being on a Monday, like we've already, we've already kind of gotten used to the idea. Although I guarantee you, you're still going to write 2023 somewhere, sometime in the next three months, okay? But we come to a new year, and, and it's always exciting. There's always this enthusiasm. There's always kind of this sense of it's a clean slate. Let's, let's start things new. Let's, let's try something different. And when was the last time you thought about the printing press? Right? Yeah. So those two do not necessarily go together in our minds. And yet, I would argue that the printing press did more to change your life than almost any other event in history. And yet, the reason you don't think about it is because it was a long time ago, right? And it was somewhere far away from here. And you just kind of are used to the fact that we have access to the printed Word. And so as a new year comes around, you might be thinking about losing weight. You might be thinking about working out. You might be thinking about a career change. You might be thinking about retirement. You might be thinking about kids, grandkids, whatever it may be, but you weren't thinking about the printing press. Well, I'm here to make sure that in 2024, at least one time you think about the invention of the printing press. Because while it was a long time ago... I would argue, it almost single-handedly created the modern reality that we live in. And, And while it happened a long way from here, its impact is still felt. And you're still like, yeah, I don't care. What's the point? I got a C in history, and I'm content with that, Brandon. Leave it alone, right? Here's the problem. When something is far removed from us in time or when something is far removed from us in space or when it's just something we're familiar with but we don't think it has a bearing on our lives, our usual reaction is to pretty much ignore it, to not think about it, to not let it be a part of our daily reality. Now, in all honesty, this sounds like sacrilege in my house, but the printing press is not something that needs to be a part of your daily life. You don't need to think about it. You don't need to be aware of it. But what if you do the same thing with Jesus? Jesus lived a long time ago. And Jesus lived in a place that was very far from here. And most of us have already heard about him. We're pretty familiar with it. And yet, do you see the problem if we treat Jesus like we treat the invention of the printing press? because it's a long way away, because it's a long time ago, because we're familiar with it, it really doesn't have any bearing on our lives. But Jesus is still relevant today. But Jesus is still relevant today. That's exactly right. Thank you, Doug. That's exactly right. When we though treat him as if he wasn't, that's eh, a problem. When the printing press was invented, it was earth-shattering. It was game-changing. It made possible so many features of the modern world, it'd be almost impossible to trace out the effects of it, and yet we just kind of ignore it. The birth of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, in a much greater way and to a much greater extent, changes everything, and yet we just kind of, most of the time, shrug. John is at pains in his gospel, to help us understand that however we react to Jesus, the one thing we can't do is shrug. The one thing we can't do is come away from an encounter with him, with Jesus, and conclude, so what? He wants us to see just how incredible Jesus is. And he does that in today's text by showing us the interaction of Jesus with some of his contemporaries and how he was received and what some of those features were in that. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna walk through this together. Now, I'm not gonna read the whole text. We're gonna be finishing out chapter one this morning, but we're gonna take it piece by piece. And I'd ask you to begin with me in verse 19. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levite to ask him, who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I'm not the Messiah. What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I'm not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. All right, so as we enter into this section of text, we're we're seeing this guy whose name's already come up. His name is John. Now, that might lead to some confusion since we're leading, reading the gospel of John. Oh, maybe this is the John who wrote the gospel. No, different John, All right? It's funny. It's name tag Sunday, right? I'm looking out at some of you, and I see you are very good at conforming, and some of you are not very good at conforming. No judgment, but just understand, I see you, okay? All right? I put my name tag on, and my name is Brandon. Hello, my name is Brandon. Well, there's another gentleman here by the name of Brandon and he offered to swap name tags with me today. And we thought that'd be a lot of fun, but it really doesn't accomplish anything, right? It's just still gonna be the same name. And so when we, when we were looking at that, it's like, hey, we got the same name. That's the same kind of thing. John, the apostle who wrote the gospel, whose letters we'll look at and who who wrote Revelation as a different John from the one who's being talked about. The John that's being addressed in this text is John the Baptist, okay? Now, John the Baptist, interesting dude, okay? Really fascinating character in the pages of Scripture. Dressed in camel hair, ate locusts and wild honey, right? And was just kind of interesting, but, but he's a very important figure, because what we don't know from the gospel, but what from, we know from other parts of scripture, is he's the first prophet to show up in Israel for a long time. And so everybody's super excited about John. And everybody's a little bit nervous about John too, because he eats bugs and, wild honey, and honey, right? Like Everybody's like, well, this guy's kind of out there. He's kind of different, kind of weird. And so the Pharisees, one of the, one of the main religious groups in that day, they send a contingent out there to John, and they say, hey, what's going on? Who are you, what is this, Etc., etc." There's a lot of interest. He's the first prophet we've seen in 400 years. This is great. But we need to know some more information. Are you the Messiah? Well, now, the Messiah is another loaded term, and I don't need to unpack it all for us here. It's just this is the one that Israel's been waiting for for centuries. Are you the one that we've been waiting for, the one who's gonna come, who's gonna drive out the Romans, who's gonna take over, uh, and who's going to bring the people of God back to the prominence that they deserve? No, not him. Okay, well, bummer. Next, are you Elijah? Now, Elijah was one of the former prophets, right? And he got taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And so they're thinking, hey, this dude never died in the pages of the Old Testament. Maybe he's come back now. Are you Elijah? And John says, no, not him either. Well, are you the prophet? And if your translation's anything like mine, it's, it's capitalized, right? They, they have in mind a very particular prophet here. Are you the prophet? Probably referencing, are you the prophet, the one that Moses said would come? Because Moses said that there was gonna be a prophet who came, who was like him, who was gonna rise up from Israel, who was gonna lead the people of God again. They're like, are you that guy? John's like, no, sorry, But, but, I'm here to tell you that guy's coming. The Messiah's coming. The prophet's coming. I'm not even worthy. And this is the guy that Luke says all Israel was going out to him, right? So this guy's drawing massive crowds, baptizing people in the Jordan. His ministry is taking off like wildfire and they come to him and say, are you this? And he says, no, as a matter of fact, That guy who's coming, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal, which is a job that the lowest of the low would have performed in that day. I'm not even worthy to bow at his feet and take his shoes off. Now, here's John, the greatest prophet that Israel has seen for centuries, saying, not me, but the guy who's coming is going to make me look like small potatoes. So the first thing that we see is we're trying to get a sense of just how incredible Jesus is. We see that he's greater than the greatest prophet they've seen in a long time. Jesus is a prophet. Let's not miss this. Jesus comes and says, thus saith the Lord. Jesus comes and says, hey, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, he's not just speaking for the Lord. He's correcting misunderstandings about what the Lord has already said as if he were the Lord himself. He's greater than any prophet. And John recognizes it. John the Baptist recognizes it. John the gospel writer recognizes it. Here's my question. Do we recognize it? Do you and I get this? Do we understand that Jesus is the prophet greater than all the other prophets? Are we with the author of Hebrews when he says, hey, God used to speak through the prophets, but in these days he's spoken to us by his son and that's all we needed to hear or not. Here's the reality. Because Jesus lived a long time ago and a long way away from here, and because we're really familiar with it, we have a strong tendency to just kind of scratch that part out and listen to him when we want to and ignore him when we don't. True or false? There have been times in your life where you knew that Jesus had said something, and you still said, you know what? I'm not going to do that thing. Jesus said to love your enemies. And you're like, Nah, I'd rather not. Jesus said to forgive. And you're like, mm, not happening. Jesus said to love. And you're like, no, nope, hate's a lot more fun. Right? This is, just our te- this is our tendency as the people of God is to hear the voice of the greatest prophet ever speaking to us through the word in the gospels right, saying to us, thus saith the Lord, and we just kind of look at him and be like, yeah, well, anyways, we've got other stuff to do. That's kind of a problem. It's not unique to us, right? We're a long way away, a long time away from Jesus, and yet this is the same thing that's happening here, right? It's interesting to me, the Pharisees send this delegation out to John and they send this delegation out there to find out, John, who are you? Who are you? What are you doing? And John says, I'm doing nothing except waiting for the guy who comes after me, who's way better than me. You should probably listen to him. And it's those same Pharisees who oppose Jesus at every step in his ministry It's those same people who said, John, who are you? And John said, I'm all about Jesus. And then the Pharisees are like, we're all about Jesus too. Jesus dying. We don't want him. What? Have you guys ever had somebody ask for your opinion? And when you give them your opinion, they just kind of shrug and walk away? The truth of the matter is, you know this as well as I do, that most of the time when somebody asks for your opinion, they don't actually want your opinion what they want is their opinion coming out of your mouth, right? Been there, done that, seen that. I hope we're not that kind of people. Like if we ask for people's opinion, we genuinely want it, that we're not actually just looking to hear our thoughts echoed. But that seems to be the case, that we come to Jesus and we're like, Jesus, I've got this problem in my life. And Jesus says, yeah, forgive him. And we're like, okay, that's clearly not the answer right? Like like we come to Jesus and we want to hear from God. We want to hear what he has to say. And then we ignore it because it doesn't line up with what we want. John, who are you? Nobody. Look at him. No, we'd rather not. To us, look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. He's the greatest. He's the point of it all. And we're like, actually, no. That's a problem, church, and we've got to avoid that. But there's more to this incredible Jesus. He's not just the greatest prophet. Look at what John says next. Verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Now, time out just a second. We're not that far removed from Christmas right now. Right? You guys remember, you read Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. You read Matthew, right? You kind of know the flow of the narrative there. Angel shows up to a woman and says, you're going to have a son. And then three months later, he shows up to another woman and says, you're going to have a son. Now, which was the first and which is the second? Well, Elizabeth is told first. That's John the Baptist's mom. You're going to have a son. Mary, Jesus' mom, is told second. Second. And yet John says, there's a man coming who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Well, now John's not a dummy, right? He, he knows that his cousin is older than him, or younger than him rather. He knows that he was born first, but he's pointing us to a bigger thing, isn't he? He's pointing us to the fact that this man, Jesus, is more than just a man. He's God. Now John didn't get this all the time. John seemed to forget this. When he later in his life, he gets thrown in prison and he's not sure that Jesus is the Messiah because he's festering in a Roman jail cell and he was thinking the Messiah was gonna come and run the Romans out. And so he sends some of his people to Jesus and be like, Jesus, are you sure you're the one? Are you sure you're the Messiah? So even John was prone to his doubts. So let's not pretend that's not possible but nonetheless in this moment he says this guy ranks ahead of me he existed before me i didn't know him but i came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to israel john says the whole reason i started baptizing people right? and john, john was baptizing them he was inviting people to be baptized as a picture of their repentance from their sin right he would lower them into the water and then he'd raise them back out and essentially it's like okay You're putting that sin to death, you're rising up and it's a new life now. We carry on some of that same imagery when we perform baptisms today. That's what John was doing. He says, but the only reason I came to do that is so that this one who's coming might be revealed. John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me the one you see the spirit descending and resting on, he's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the son of God. Now look at those two things that John has said about Jesus. He saw Jesus coming to him and he says, that's the lamb of God. And then he said, I testify that's the son of God. Now, these both are terms that are loaded with meaning. But I want to focus on the lamb of God and what he does. Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the lamb of God. Now, when the Jewish mind heard the lamb, their mindset went directly to the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system that Moses set up when the people of Israel sinned, when they failed to uphold their covenant with God, God said, you can come to the temple and you can bring a spotless lamb and that lamb can die. Its blood can be shed instead of your blood being shed because the wages of sin is death. Rather than you dying Israelite, this lamb can die in your place John looks at Jesus and he says, That's the Lamb of God. Now, I would submit they did not have a clue yet about what that was going to look like. They didn't know how it was going to happen, but nonetheless, they hear, That's the Lamb of God. Jesus is the one who takes away the sins of the world. Now, you hear that and it sounds really good. And if you've been in church, if you've grown up in this kind of circle, then you understand this and you would be able to parrot the Sunday school answer, right? Jesus died to take away the sins of the world, right? Jesus died for my sins. If I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart, God raised him from the dead, I can be saved from my sins. All of those things are facts that we are familiar with, but have they actually done anything Here's the thing that I'm talking about. A lot of times we talk about Jesus taking our sins. And what we mean is that he takes the punishment for our sins. Look, the Lamb of God who takes, and then we kind of put this in there, takes away the consequences of the sin of the world. You and I both know that if we were to be given what we deserve because of our rebellion against God, what we deserve is to be eternally separated from him. What we deserve is not the love of God. What we deserve is the wrath of God, right? You grow up in Sunday school, you know this. This is like Christianity 101. But what we mean most of the time is that Jesus takes away the consequences of our sin, but that's not what John says. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let me try to get at what I'm saying here. How many of you have been to McKay's Bookstore in Nashville? Oh, you poor souls. McKay's Bookstore is probably my family's favorite place in Nashville. That may not sound like high praise because we avoid Nashville like the plague, but when we go to Nashville, almost inevitably, one of my kids will say, can we go to McKay's? McKay's is a bookstore, and what you can do is you can take books sitting around your house or or other items, you can take them to them, and they will give you money for those books that you can then take and spend on more books there in their used bookstore. It's fantastic. Now, my family has a love book love relationship with books there's no love hate there's a love love relationship with books the hate part of the relationship is the amount of space that books take up we are continually running out of room and so there is a frequent need for us to make a trip to mckay's for them to give us pennies on the dollar for books that we paid 200 bucks for they're like here's two dollars we're like yay and then we go buy more books to not have a place to put them anyways last time we went to mckay's listen to what i did I went in with a box of books. I give them to the the attendant. They sort them while you're browsing and then tell you how much credit you're gonna get, et cetera, et cetera. So I set the books on the counter. I go and start browsing. I'm looking at this book like, man, that looks like a good book. I should probably buy this book. And my daughter looks at me and says, we have that book. We don't need that book again. Right, that's a great point. I should put this back. What we do is with Jesus, when we say, hey, we're going to take our sins to Jesus, we're meant to leave them there and walk away. But what we so often do is we recognize Jesus takes away the sins of the world as the Lamb of God, and yet so often we just keep taking them back. We take them in, we drop them off. We don't want this anymore, but what we mean is we don't want the consequences of them. We don't want them cluttering up our lives. Oh, look, Here's that same thing again, let's take it back with us. Jesus did not come to save you from the consequences of your sins. He came to save you from your sins. In other words, to take them out of your life and to say you don't need to walk in this addiction anymore. You don't need to continue in this self-destructive relationship anymore. You don't need to continue to give yourself away to this thing that is killing you and destroying the lives of people around you. Jesus comes to take your sins away. Quit picking them back up. That's what it means to repent. To repent is not to feel bad for your sin. To repent is to turn away from it to leave it where Jesus has put it on the cross and to quit walking in it, to quit living in it. In 2024, if you want to understand who Jesus is, you need to understand this. He didn't die so that you can keep doing the same thing but not go to hell as a result. He came so that you wouldn't have to go to hell as a result and so that you could live free the way he intended you to live. He takes away the sins of the world. Why do we keep go picking them up? Because that was a long time ago and a long way from here, and we've heard it all before, and the sin is right now. And we get distracted very easily. Look at this next thing. says, is after John was standing with two of his disciples, he saw Jesus passing by. He said, look at the Lamb of God. Then verse 37, two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned around and noticed them following him, he asked, what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went, saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day and it was about four in the afternoon. Now this is interesting to me. John says, there's the Lamb of God, and you've got these two disciples who are like, cool. We're going to follow him. All right, And when, they, when Jesus turns around, he sees people following him, which, by the way, is a normal reaction to people following you. What are you doing? They say, well, where are you staying? Why? Because they just, they just want to hang out with him they they want to figure more out like okay you're the lamb of god what's that mean i don't quite get this reference son of god okay got it but tell me more they want to follow they want to learn and so they do and this is true john is pointing us to a reality jesus is worth following jesus is worth following So often we define ourselves as Baptists or Christians or evangelicals, but one of my favorite ways to reference us is as Christ followers. What are you? I'm not a Baptist, or if I am, I'm not a very good one. What are you? I'm not a Christian because that could mean any number of things to any number of people. What are you, an evangelical? Nope. That does not define my voting practices. No. What I am is somebody who's just trying to follow Jesus. That whole idea of that identity of being Christ followers, that's really what he's getting at. They took up, there's the Lamb of God, they're just gonna follow him because he's worth it. Is Jesus still worth following? Is Jesus worth following even when life sucks? Is Jesus still worth following even when we don't understand? Is Jesus worth following no matter what? Or is Jesus worth following until it gets difficult? See, these guys, they're, they're like, hey, there's the Lamb of God. We're going to follow him. And they do. And, and really, the Gospel of John, we see all this. They, they spend a lot of time following him. They give three years of their lives to this. But what happens when Jesus gets arrested? Spoiler alert. They all fall away. They all fall away when it gets difficult. Why would we think we're immune from that? Why would we imagine that following Jesus for us is gonna be any easier than it was for them? Because we know what they didn't know the night of the crucifixion. We know that Jesus rose from the dead. What happens when Jesus comes back from the dead to all of these followers? Oh, they're sold out they 're with him one hundred percent they 're willing to die, and a matter of fact, every single one of them did even even John eventually died, even though he was not uh, he was miraculously preserved, uh, but he even died. They all died, but it was worth it because they knew that Jesus had died and then rose again and Jesus said, "If I do it, then you 're going to do it too and their whole frame of reference shifted. But for some reason for us, we come and we're gonna follow and we live post-resurrection, but because it was so long ago and so far away and we've heard it so many times, we just can't imagine it so that when things get difficult, we just are like, yeah, that wasn't worth it. We give up far too quickly on following Christ when it costs us something. Then's when we're out. When it requires a change, we say, no, no thanks. That's far enough. I really wanna get in shape. I ain't going to no gym, right? I really want to lose weight and eat better in 2024. That's a New Year's resolution that I didn't make though, because I'm not deleting the Sonic app from my phone. We all can want things. We can all want to be the kind of people who are in shape. We can want to be the people that eat healthy. We can want to be all number of things. But the moment it gets difficult to do that or runs contrary to our desires is the moment we're like, "Whoa, we're out." same thing with following jesus you're sitting in church on a sunday morning right there's some thing in you that says i want to follow jesus well is it just a want or is it a commitment is it a desire that's never going to lead to any action or is it something that's really going to change you and transform your habits and the way you conduct yourself and the conversations that you have is it something that's going to stop once it gets hard This is a question I think we're meant to wrestle with. We're meant to see this Jesus is incredible. And as we walk through the gospel of John, we're going to see over and over and over so many instances of him being incredible. What we've got to recognize is that even though it was a long time ago and a long way away, as Doug said, he's still relevant. And when things get hard, he's still going to walk with us if we'll continue to follow him. Here's the thing. These disciples, they're like, hey, we want to go with you. We want to follow you. Come and you'll see. So then they stayed with him all day. And it was about four in the afternoon. They stay with him all day. Can you imagine a day with Jesus? Never having heard anything from him, about him. First time, just kind of hanging out, fresh eyes. These guys realize there's something unique about him but they don't just realize that for themselves. They don't just go back to their home like, hey, cool, I'm gonna hang out with Jesus again tomorrow. The first thing they do, look at this. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah. Jesus is worth following even when it's difficult. But more than that, Jesus is worth telling other people about. That's that's his first reaction. Andrew says, You know what? I'm not just going to come out and hang out with Jesus again tomorrow. I have got to. And it says he first found his brother Simon and said, We found him. This is what we've been looking for. There's a famous quote that says, Every man who walks into a brothel is looking for Christ, he just doesn't know it yet. The point stands no matter what it is. Everybody who goes onto social media looking for their meaning, their purpose, they're looking for Jesus. They just don't know it yet. Everyone who walks into their office and is desperate for some sort of purpose, some sort of meaning, they're trying to make some money so they can go on vacation, they're trying to get a position so they can gain some respect. Everybody who has any desire at all is looking for Jesus. They just don't know it yet. Jesus is worth telling others about because he's the one they're actually looking for. Our desires are good, but we just look to have them fulfilled in the wrong spot. Our desires are meant to point us to Christ and stopping anywhere short of it is going to ultimately betray us. Who knows this in our world today? Who knows this? You do. I do. Right? Andrew knows this. And the first reaction he has, I've got to tell my brother. Is that our first reaction? When we come face to face with people's desires in our world, we recognize that they are hungry for something, they're desiring something, is our first reaction... You can stop looking, I found him, or not. No, we'll tell others about Jesus up until it gets uncomfortable. We'll gladly tell others about Jesus until we're worried about what they might say or what questions they might ask or if they might think less of us. Maybe they'll call us a Bible thumper and we just really couldn't handle that kind of abuse, right? Jesus is worth telling others about, and we're like, nah, scratch that. I'll gladly tell others about him as long as it doesn't make me uncomfortable. We don't do this with anything else that we love in life. I will gladly tell you, whether you ask me or not, about my favorite music artist. I could talk to you for hours and force you to listen through multiple albums of Josh Ritter's music. And I could explain to you the meanings of his sometimes uh, strange lyrics. And I could do that all the time, you standing there looking at me like, I don't care. But I won't tell you about Jesus. I could even talk to you about my favorite college football team Go Broncos, Boise State. I could tell you about them, and I wouldn't care if you were an SEC fan. As a matter of fact, that's probably a good way to get me talking about the Broncos As if you're an SEC fan. It might make you uncomfortable, but I'll talk about it. You don't have to ask me, but if you were, what's your favorite candy? I would gladly tell you, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. And I would not feel the slightest discomfort in telling you that information. Why? Why can I be uncomfortable talking about literally the most important person, not just in my life, but in the universe? Why would I be uncomfortable talking about him and the impact and the difference he's made in my life and yet not uncomfortable at all talking about these other subjects about which you might not care? Because in the center of us, in the core of our being, we think Jesus was so long ago, he was so far away. Are we sure That he's real? Because, I mean, I can listen to a Josh Ritter album with you. And and I can explain to you why a love song talking about the relationship between a mummy and an archaeologist really has some deep meaning. And that's kind of the response I normally get when I talk about that song. And and I can talk to you about that because you could actually listen to it. And we could go to a Josh Ritter show together. And there's something you can actually experience in your day-to-day life. I'm pointing to a reality that exists. And I could talk to you about Boise State football all day because you and I could sit down on the couch and we could watch a game. If we were incredibly fortunate, we could go and we could stand on that hallowed blue turf together and feel and smell the sense of Bronco Stadium. And we're just not sure if the same holds true for Jesus. And provided you don't have a peanut allergy, I would gladly share my Reese's with you because you can taste and see that I'm right. They are the best. But I'm not sure that you can taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus is worth telling others about, but I think there's this niggling fear inside of us that says, Will others think I'm weird? If I talk about a person they can't see as if he's really real, will other people struggle? If I talk about this relationship with somebody who lived 2000 years ago, people are gonna think I'm nuts. But Jesus is still relevant. He didn't just live a long time ago. He's living today. He he did not just walk the earth a long way away. He's walking today with us. If I go, I will send the Spirit to be with you. Behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. Jesus is not over there somewhere, He's right here. We are His body. We are the Christ that others will see. So we should get over this being uncomfortable talking about him because we worry that maybe people think we're crazy. No, Jesus is very much still right now today operating in this world. And Jesus is still very much present right here in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. But we need to believe it so that we'll be willing to tell other people. Look at verse, let's continue this, this, this in verse 43, excuse me, 42. He brought Simon to Jesus. So Andrew goes, he gets Simon, he tells him, you got to come see the Messiah. He brings him to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, Nathanael asked him? Come and see. Philip answered. Interesting, the response Philip gives to Nathanael, the exact same response that Jesus gave him. Where are you staying? Come and see. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Come and experience it for yourself. So often we go out to share the gospel with people and it makes us uncomfortable when, because we might not know the answer to their objection. All we gotta do is just say, come and see. Dive into the gospels. Get plugged into life of the church and see if Jesus is still at work today. But that's Nathanael. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, here truly is an Israelite in Whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus responded to him, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, Truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathaniel's amazed because Jesus says, "I know you, Nathaniel. I saw you, Nathaniel." And Nathaniel's response is the only appropriate one. "You are the son of God, you are the king of Israel." And that's what John's the gospel writer John. That's what his whole focus is. For us to see just how incredible Jesus is. is is not just to recognize that Jesus is a great prophet, Uh, not just to recognize that Jesus is a savior who saves people from their sins and takes them away, not just to see that Jesus is worth following or that Jesus is worth telling others about. John's point is to get us to this proclamation from Nathanael. You are the king of God's people. Jesus is the king of God's people. Now, that should absolutely fry our circuitry, and yet we're so familiar with it. We just kind of shrug, and we say, yeah, well, you can be the king as long as the king does what we want. Well, if the king is doing what the subject wants, who's actually in charge here? All right? Mitch Hedberg said, I look at my pants, and I look at my belt, and my pants are holding up my belt, and my... Belt is holding up my pants. Who's really in charge down there? If we've got a king who it's like, hey, we'll submit to you as long as you do what we want. Is he really our king? We all like teacher Jesus, prophet Jesus. Jesus says some really good stuff. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or as has been commonly rephrased, do unto others before they do unto you. But that's not what Jesus said. He said the first one. Right? We like Jesus as teacher. Jesus is a good teacher. We like that. He's a prophet. We like that. Jesus is a savior. We really like that. Because none of us wants to deal with the reality of our sins. None of us wants to deal with the consequences of those things. Yeah, Jesus, you can take that. But it's at this point that we have a tendency to stick. Jesus is king. Here's the thing. You can't just split Jesus up and keep the parts you like. Right? When you come to Jesus, you come to the whole Jesus, the prophet, the savior, the king. And the king is in charge. You're not. This is what John wants us to see. Look, it really doesn't matter what we think about Jesus if what we think about Jesus is not this truth. It's all about him. It's not about me. We have to grasp that, that Jesus is king and that we submit to him, period, not just when he does what we want. That Jesus is king, that he calls the shots, that we're not in charge anymore. The moment we say you are Lord is the moment that we give up our rights to our lives. Why do we not do that? If Jesus is as incredible as John makes him out to be, and he is and more because language fails, if Jesus is as incredible as we will see him to be as we walk through the gospel, if, if that is just how amazing this guy, this God is, why don't we willingly submit to him in everything? Because we're afraid of where that might lead. Jesus is king, he's in charge. That means you gotta do what he says. And we're just afraid that that might mean we're gonna have to work with some special needs families in the ministry that Stuart talked about. Or maybe we give up an hour of Thursday time to go and serve in the Good News Club. Or maybe we get called to the foreign mission field. Or, Or maybe we get called to lead in Awana. Or maybe we get called to... I sweep the floor. Just every single one of us has different things. Some of y'all would be terrified to get up on a stage and talk to people, right? And you're like, well, what if he calls me to do that? And some of you would be terrified to have to change your life, to interrupt your routine because of what Jesus calls you to, and so you don't. And I'm here to tell you, every single one of us has got stuff. It's like, I'll do that, but I don't want to do that. I'm not exempt from that. Your your other pastors are not exempt from that. Your Sunday school teachers are not exempt from that. The people going on mission trips are not exempt from that. But the point is, when we come to the king, we either say yes or we rebel. And John is trying to show us Jesus is worth saying yes to. He's all of these things. And if the king is also the savior, and if the savior is also the prophet, then we can trust that whatever he calls us to, even if it makes it uncomfortable, even if it is difficult for us to do, it's going to be best. It's going to be good. Jesus is greater than the greatest prophet. We should listen to him. Jesus takes away the sins of the world. We should let him keep them. Jesus is worth following. Let's go where he leads. Jesus is worth telling others about. Let's do it and not just talk about it. Because Jesus is king. Let's submit to him in 2024 and see what he does. Let's pray.